So when I was at 95.7, me and OC were in the hallway one day, and he came up to me and he said, how much money would it take for me to just punch you right now square in the face? And I said, I don't know that there is a dollar amount. He's like, you wouldn't do it for $15,000? I said, no. He goes, well, would you do it for $50,000? I said, I don't think so. He's like, well, what number? Difference between me and him. Like, when I watched his fights, I watched it with my hand over my face because I could not stand watching him get beat the hell out of. So anytime I got an invitation from him, I was a little bit hesitant because that's just not built in my DNA, Vince. I don't know about you. I'm a lover, not a fighter. So, hey, it's a different animal to do what you do, Sean. But if it works for you, that's all that matters. You got paid. He won a million dollars on New Year's Eve and retired on the spot. That's a beautiful way to go out. No doubt. I'm in Arizona, and somebody in Arizona won $410 million last night. So. Wow. Lottery? Yeah. Yeah, I do that every once in a blue moon. The only time I do it is if the person that's in line in front of me buys one. I'll say, get me whatever that guy got, because he's not going to win. So maybe I got a shot. <laughs> so he's not going to win, but I will. Yeah. yeah. And then I, maybe I'll try to look him up and give him, like, a couple grand. I hear you. We don't have lottery in Utah, and... When I lived in the Bay, I would buy lottery tickets, you know, and I realized that I'm one of those idiots. I would actually get my hopes up and be like, you know what I would do if I won that money? Yeah. That's what I wanted 17 million. You got a shot. Yeah, it's bad. Somebody told me once that you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning, not only once, not only twice, but (laughs) twice in the same spot than you do of winning the lottery. That's when I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll only buy when somebody buys it in front of me. You can't win if you don't play. That's right. This is true. (laughs) How rare it is, the chance is not zero. So, (laughs) Wayne Gretzky, you miss every shot you don't take. That's right. Michael Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like my putting right now on the golf course. (laughs) All right. Well, OC and Z, Sean O'Connell, the man, the myth, the legend, the million dollar man, as I dubbed you, even though that name has been taken by a wrestler and friends. Great Face Dave is in the building, and we have the pleasure of being joined by Vince Catronio. You know his name well. Probably like, what, 85% of the people that listen to our podcast are from the Bay Area. The I don't even know if I can call you the color guy on radio because you do play-by-play, too. So what is your actual formal name in terms of doing the A's broadcasting? <laughs> That's a good question, Z. I would just say I'm just part of the broadcast crew. That's what I do. We all have our job to do. Ken yeah. leads the way, and I'm along for the ride. Fair enough. Okay, so before we get to the hard stuff, I just want to ask you, first of all, I miss you. I miss Ken. I miss all the security people. I miss the taco truck people. I miss being around the ballpark. On a scale of 1 to 10, as somebody that does this as they're living and just lives and breathes baseball every day, and I did the pre and post, and I had the pleasure of being around you guys as much as I was, how much do you just miss the actual baseball? Well, it's a 12, at least. I mean, that's the way it is for everybody. That's associated with the sport, not just me, that has my part of how this comes together, but... Multiply that many times over for a player, certainly for Bob Melvin, people in the clubhouse, just worked at the Coliseum. And for what I do on our side as broadcasters, what I know is frustrating and I'm unable to deliver is that there are so many people, fans of the A's, fans of the Pirates, fans of the Royals, fans of the Braves, whose day revolves around first pitch, whether it's on television or radio, their day ends or starts with rooting for their favorite player and their favorite team and listening to people like myself that bring the stories and bring the game to them. And it's an important part of their day that's lacking. And not just people your age or my age, but certainly shut-ins that can't get out and do things. 
or guys that are delivering the goods from coast to coast, thankfully, you know, the 18-wheelers that are listening, they, you know, they start their day in, you know, Sacramento and they're down in Bakersfield and we were with them the whole way. So we're apologetic that we can't get that done right now, but fingers crossed we'll get some semblance of a season put together or we'll try to bring as much joy and as much age baseball to them as we can. The main thing that I want to ask you before we get into, because I want to ask a specific stuff, and I think a lot of people are going to want to tune into this to hear your voice, just to hear it even in podcast form. Um, but so I, I want to ask a specific stuff. But before we get into that, just the general MLB question is, are they really going to do this? There's different things that have been put on offers back and forth between the MLB and the Players Association. Are they really going to either not have the best experience that they can over money or possibly not even have it at all over money? Are they really going to do that over money again, Vince? Well, I think everybody's emotions have been sent through the ringer from the emotional downs of where they were with the pandemic. And certainly, let's be clear, baseball in the grand scheme of things is pretty minimal in comparison to what's happening in the world and specifically in the last two weeks in our country. So if baseball can help in some ways, like it did in 1968 with the World Series with the Tigers, help begin a small part of the healing process, as we have certainly found out, that wasn't the answer in 68 because we're in 2020, and we're dealing with the same kind of issues that we dealt with back then. However, getting an opportunity to bring something to people that represents a sense of normalcy is important. I've covered baseball strikes since I was an intern in 1981 at NBC, and that was back when everybody came to the hotel, you saw ownership, you saw the commissioner, you saw their team go into the hotel, walk through the lobby of Marvin Miller and Donald Fear and player representatives, the you know, guys that go way back, and they would meet every day, then they would come out and they would have their run with the media about what happened today. That's what's lacking to me in this particular circumstance, aside from the fact that everything else that's happening in the world, what is occurring in the social media landscape is that people are fighting and they're very good at what they do. They're fighting to get the story out first and not allowing two sides just to sit and negotiate because one side comes out, the other side quickly says, this is a non-starter. This is not what we're looking for. This is not going to get us anywhere. And it just continues to delay the process. And given where baseball is right now, to be jumped by Major League Soccer, which is you know not a knock on Major League Soccer, but for Major <laughs> League Soccer to get on the field before Major League Baseball, yeah. it shows that this has not been the kind of negotiation you were hoping that was going to have an ending that should have concluded, you know, some days ago. Yeah, that's one thing to kind of piggyback off what Zach's asking about. The integrity of baseball as like an American pastime, is it an overreaction to say that that is under threat if they don't get back to business? Because there's so many other entertainment options now. There's other sports like MLS, like the UFC that's been doing events that are, you know, they're hoping desperately hoping that MLB doesn't get its act together so they can grab some market share. You know, I don't overreact, but baseball, there's an argument that baseball is becoming less and less popular because it's not that what have you done for me now type of entertainment that people are so accustomed to. So is there an actual threat to baseball's position as the pastime it's been for so long? Everything is different in 2020, Sean, from the standpoint that there are tens of millions of Americans that are out of work. There are so many small business owners that are losing their livelihood, losing their whatever their passion was, owning a restaurant or owning a small business. Because the economy basically shut down completely for weeks on months, 
it forced these people to the sideline, which is unfortunate. That and the reason for that, the pandemic and trying to work through that process and try to be safe as possible for everybody involved. And then the George Floyd scenario two weeks ago and the necessary conversation that should have been happening years ago is back to the forefront. Because of those things, Sean, I do think it does put baseball in a unique situation. The strike of 94, the strike of 81, the near strike of going into 03, they didn't have those circumstances. These things are front and center, and they are life decisions that people are having to deal with. And how do they provide for their family? How do they get their next meal for their family? Where do they get their next paycheck from? Everybody, including all of us involved in this particular podcast, has a story how we've been affected by what has happened in the world. For us, specifically from our family, my youngest daughter is a high school graduate this year. She's among the hundreds of thousands of high school seniors that graduated through the computer, you know, virtually. Literally got in the car and drove to school. They handed her the diploma, and she drove out. So it's just a different world. And these are the kids, including our youngest daughter, that were born in the shadow of 9-11. So they've had, you know, their whole lifetime has been around these incredible moments that you remember for decades and having to deal with that. Our oldest daughter moved back to the Phoenix area with her husband from Fort Benning, Georgia. My son-in-law was, was in the Army for, for six years, was looking toward other possibilities, Border Patrol or Fire Department. My daughter was a food science major at Kansas State. She had a job opportunity here. My son-in-law was well in the process in both of those other avenues, and they both had been delayed and don't know if or when you know they're going to get a chance to get back to actually working. They're living with us. You know, My son does what I do. Dominic is a broadcaster in the minor leagues. And fortunate for him, because he's a golf enthusiast, he works at the golf course that he grew up at. And so he has a job, per se, but he's living at home and not pursuing his, his dreams as well. And those are just really small stories in comparison to everybody that has to deal with this. And I've gone to our local food bank, and I've you know, donated time there and donated dollars there. And it's just very humbling to watch a never-ending parade of cars just waiting to have the National Guard put a week's worth of groceries in their trunk. While, you know, the people that deal with what I deal with and the sport that I'm dealing with can't see past that to come to some negotiation specifically for 2020, not trying to win a negotiation, not trying to win something going to the 2021 CBA. Well, let's just focus on this year and try to be a, an uplifting part of the rebuilding process in everybody's community. And I don't think they've done a very good job of that. Yeah, and just to touch on what you were talking about in terms of your daughter, that's why I brought up on one of these podcasts the celebration graduation that they had virtually with LeBron James and a bunch of singers. Like To me, that was cool because, again, there is a long list of people that just didn't have what you're supposed to have. They didn't have the senior prom. They didn't have the graduation. And so I thought that that was super cool. I mean, I watched it, and – even though I don't have anybody, like not even a niece or a nephew or a child for that matter, that was graduating this year, I watched it in celebration just because I don't know if your daughter watched it, but just to be able to celebrate, to be able to do something that you weren't able to get, it was like cool for ABC to do that for two hours and be able to have that whole thing. Yeah, we watched it as a family. You know, it's, yeah. it, was, it was important for us to share in that moment with Sophia, and she watched it even in advance of that because she's 18 and she knows how to do things with computers <laughs> that I don't. She watched with her friends before she came downstairs and watched it. Because, you know, being in Phoenix, we're, you know, we're on Western time zone and 
it was already on live on the East Coast. She was able oh, to find yeah. that. So yeah, then we yeah. watched, you know, basically what was the tape delay yeah. uh, sitting around television on our couch. So Okay, so I want to ask you about the A's, and I have to parse my words here. I am very happy that the A's decided to pay their minor league players after previously it being reported that they were not going to. Mr. John Fisher, and again, you are talking to the biggest A's fan ever. I grew up on Mark McGuire and Dave Henderson and Jose Canseco and Ricky Henderson, and I worked with you alongside doing the pre and post on the radio side. So I'm saying all of this to say that I love Oakland and I love the A's wholeheartedly. But what I'd like to ask you, and I know it's even more difficult for you because I'm not even in the field now, so I can speak a little bit more freely, and perhaps not you, but what exactly is going on in terms of, and this is a bad year, I often think about the pandemic in terms of like what teams were screwed by this and what teams don't care. For instance, the Warriors don't care because they had the worst record in the league, but the Lakers care because LeBron could have got another title. You know, the Lakers could have won. In terms of baseball, the A's are currently a very good team, so it sucks for them. But what are you hearing in terms of a new stadium getting built? They're the only team there now, Vince. The Raiders went to Vegas. The Warriors went to San Francisco. We've been hearing about all of this stuff. David Cavill came in. I mean, like, what is going on with the new stadium? They're the only team there now. Yeah, I mean, Dave Cavill has done a remarkable job in terms of being the face of that part of the organization and has been very aggressive with state legislature and, and with local legislature, with the mayor and with city council and things of that nature. Building things in California are not easy. It, no, it's, it's a challenge. And I mean, specifically Oakland. And well, an example is the uh, Texas Rangers have built two stadiums, and the A's have not even built one yet. They built the ballpark in Arlington. They moved in there and. In 94, the All-Star game in 95, and they, at some point when the season starts, they'll be in their brand-new stadium right across the street. It just doesn't happen that easily in California, and yet the A's have taken, in my opinion, every correct step to attempt to make that happen. Uh, the idea that they want to be in that stadium in 2023 it has always been the idea, and at times it's been the promise. Given what's happened in the world in the last six months and needing paperwork and needing revenue streams and needing sources to come together toward one project where really those dollars may have to be devoted to more important social and community issues. I don't know necessarily if the A's will get there in 2023. That's still their goal. Dave Cavill most recently said that in the San Francisco Chronicle. We're still pointing toward 2023. I am still of the thought, and like everybody else, waiting for a shovel to go on the ground somewhere, whether it's the Howard Terminal Project we're currently uh, on site where the Coliseum is. It's Some fans don't understand in some ways, just looking at this specifically, taking every, if you can possibly take the world out of this. But from a revenue stream standpoint, from a standpoint of trying to keep your best players, from a standpoint of recruiting players to come to your organization, the A's have both hands tied behind their back because their facilities are just, they're not as good. And uh, while they upgraded very dramatically down here in the Phoenix area, spring training with the training complex, which is state-of-the-art, still having something, you know, that is their home stadium and for the community to have their home stadium, it's something that needs to be addressed. And if you watch and if you've read or if you've looked at the history of the athletics, this is a familiar story. I mean, they've had many years going to the World Series, three straight years with very low attendance. These things have happened throughout the course of the history of this franchise. They're trying to change that narrative with, as you mentioned, Zach, a, a very talented team that has a chance to be a talented team 
for a period of time. This is not just a very short window. This has a chance to be a three to five year I window. know, but Vince, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Vince. I know that. I love this core. I want this core to be around, but you have to understand, you're talking to a guy that cut school to take Bart to go to A's games. I've only bled the beautiful green and yellow. And what I'm saying is what I'm worried is it's going to turn into Giambi signing with the Yankees. It's going to turn into Miguel Tejada signing with the Orioles. I'm worried about all these guys leaving. Yeah, it's a fair point. That's been the history of the organization. Billy Bean has been very upfront about wanting to keep players. Both Matt Olson and Matt Chapman both have said to a certain degree publicly they want to stay. They want to be a part of this group moving forward. A lot of things have to come together for that. But, Vince, it's not a lot of things that need to come together. It's just needing a new stadium. And if you're telling me that you're not even confident about 2023, that means that this young core that made the playoffs is not going to be around because the stadium needs to come. And I just don't get why, especially now with the Raiders and the Warriors being gone, they can't do it. Well, understand from a technical point of view, Z, that outside of Marcus Simeon, because of the way that the system is set up, Matt Chapman's not going anywhere for years. Matt Olson's not going anywhere for years. Jesus Lazardo, A.J. Putt, Ramon Laureano, those guys are locked in for several years, independent yeah. of a stadium or not, because of the system. You want to be in a position where you can reward those players for excellence and hopefully reward them because of postseason performances. They get to that point. But you're looking at Chapman and Olson both already at a very – Early time in their career with multiple gold gloves, two platinums for Matt Chapman at third base. And looking at what players are getting, those are some pretty big numbers. And other teams like the A's have had to make choices. Uh, I mean, look what the, uh, the Nationals just did. They won the World Series, and they chose to keep Strasburg over Anthony Rendon. And part of that was the way Strasburg performed, I think, in October. He really raised his profile. You know, he's been a very talented pitcher. But he took it to the next level where you thought he was going to be a free agent and go someplace else, and they kept him in-house. So the A's have those questions. I'm with you. Who wouldn't want to see those guys play as much of their careers as possible in Oakland? It just doesn't happen that way on a consistent basis for any team anymore. With the MLB not being a hard cap league, a lot of those choices, are there's more fluidity in those choices for franchises than there are in, like, the NFL, for example. and not to beat up the A's, but the history of the A's has been to get more with less, right? To get the bargain and get great production out of that bargain. If you've got, if this core, it's decided this core of young players is one that can deliver another World Series, does it make sense that they would buck the trend of A's history and say, all right, we're going to take a swing, we're going to give guys what they want, we're going to pay big to see if we can deliver a World Series? Because the A's are one of these teams that, unfortunately, have proven their fan base stays pretty loyal even without delivering World Series. So if I'm ownership, yes, I want one, but I don't necessarily need one. But would they take a big swing on big contracts if this is the right group? Well, again, Sean, going back to the way the system is set up specifically today, they don't have to do that with those players that I mentioned because contractually they're not going anywhere. They haven't even hit arbitration yet with the two mats. And once that happens, then you've got three more years. And the same with Laureano. So you have time. Yeah, would you like to offer them a contract? Maybe offer them security, take a year or two of free agency from them. That gives them a chance to to have some lifetime security like a Jose Batista did with the Toronto Blue Jays. I, mean, I am a firm believer that Jose Batista, while he complained when his contract was over that it was undervalued, I believe he became Jose Batista because he got the kind of contract 
that allowed him to focus on his game. Ben Grieve, who Ace fans can remember, is Rookie of the Year. I saw him terrorize the Rangers. Three was offered a $14 million contract, and he was out of the game two years later. He was smart enough to take that deal then and have some financial security that he may not have had had he just simply played the arbitration game and just let it play out. So every player, every player with their management team have decisions that they've got to make. I'm almost certain that there have been some level of conversations with all those players with certain numbers. Remember Marcus Simeon, three years ago, he was offered Tim Anderson money, which was, I think, $26 million contract over four or six years. And then he broke his wrist and he thought, well, it's not going to happen. He was still not quite the Marcus Simeon that Ace fans finally saw as an MVP finalist. Is your Marcus bet on Marcus. And now he's in a position to be financially compensated. Now it's his decision, it's his choice, how important is it for me to stay in the Bay Area full-time? From here, born here, my family is here. How important is it for me to get the very last dollar that I can get or something close to that? And where are the A's in that process? That's what the negotiation is all about. What I want to ask you about, this is bringing up stuff that I really don't even want to bring up, but the amount of elimination games that the A's have lost, game fives and five-game series, wild card games, whatever you want to look at, it's all been devastating to me. I've been at, I was at the flip game. I left my family and friends. I didn't want to be around people. I would stand in different areas of the Coliseum. This was before I was even doing broadcasting. But I want to ask you, because when they are in the playoffs and they are relevant, the stadium is totally full. So you can't just say it's, oh, they'll never fill out because the stadium's not good enough or whatever. Like when the games are relevant and it's a popular thing, People are there, and you have to buy standing room only tickets. So I'm asking you, how much of it has to do with how good the team is? Because they've been good for the past few years. How much of it is how good they are versus the actual stadium and the actual experience? The stadium doesn't seem to matter when they're in a playoff game. That's a question you have to ask the Ace fan. As we just discussed earlier, the core of Ace fans are there regardless. Now the key is trying to grow that core of fans that will expand that. Now back in you know 12 and 13. They were selling, they had like eight to 12 sellouts in the 13 season after the 12 success. So there were times where fans had come out during the regular season to see games. And I do think that potentially was on its way back. I think it would have been there this year had it been a regular full season with the normalcy that we were all accustomed to, which is something we're never going to have again. But I do think for whatever reason, this particular collection of players has recaptured the imagination of the ace fans that remember the Tejadas, the Chavezes, the Giambis, and the Hudson Mulder and Zitos, and felt like maybe truly this was a collection of players that had that right mojo and had the right manager to enjoy that success. And I think you would have seen higher attendance levels. I think you still will once we get back to the point of actually getting people into the ballpark. I have a solution for the A's. (laughs) I don't know if it will fly specifically because you're in the Bay Area. Is there a large hipster contingent in the bay area a large what hipsters you know hipsters the people there's a lot of hipsters oh there's tons yes there's tons the answer to your your question oc is yes there is a ton all right well hear me out then okay because the coliseum and the a's specifically are the perfect hipster baseball team they would get near sellouts if they could become the baseball team specifically for hipster fans. Well, they did that, OC. They had taco trucks. Because yeah, they what, had the taco trucks in between the stadiums. What hipsters like 
is pretending that they're poor even when they have expendable income. They like wearing old, ratty, vintage clothing. They like nostalgia. They like beat-up things, right? I love the Coliseum because it's what it is, because it's a nasty, old, messed-up, original sporting arena, right? I mean, everywhere else is these glittering museums to the money that professional sports bring in now. But the Coliseum could be like the hipster capital of all sports. And, oh, see, if they would just take down Mount Davis, sure. you would have the view of Oakland, and you could bring the flowers back and the water. I mean, yeah, it used to be a beautiful stadium. I'm telling you, it's the perfect thing for hipsters. Import them from Portland, from <laughs> Brooklyn, and get them Portland in the- is definitely a hipster hotspot. Just be like, look, hipsters, we have designed a baseball team specifically for you. Those yeah. are old-school vintage colors. Those are old-school uniforms. Yeah. And just make it happen. If you're not going to build the stadium, get the people that will embrace your old stadium. Well, would you not agree that in the process with Dave Cavill, and since he's come on board at a time when Chris Giles was there until he has since left, that they have made efforts to try to dress this thing up as best they can to make it the kind of place where you don't have to sit in that stodgy seat in Section 137, Row H, seat number four for every game that you can move around that you can stand in an area that there is a vibe watching the game that there are people that are communally you know with the same goal i think they've made efforts to do things like that in that ballpark in the meantime and i think they're using that as trial balloons if they can get the shovel in the ground for the next project and take the best of those circumstances to make that happen and in the meantime i think they have tried to create some of that environment for people to enjoy they for sure have I want to go on record and say that I think that is not a flaw in organizations. That's not a flaw. That is a flaw in the fan base. I think that is a problem that we all as sports viewing fans have now that we want what was for so many, for decades and decades, just a classic sports viewing experience. And we suddenly 10 years ago demanded that it has to have a curated museum of art in Levi Stadium, and you got to make sure you got plush seats, and you better have sushi on the menu somewhere. Baseball specifically, the beauty of it was sitting in that hot plastic seat next to your dad <laughs> and getting a, a hot dog that was probably partially fermented, and one end of the bun was a little bit soggy. The, the relish had this ungodly green color to it. I think it's a problem with the fan base that we demand more now. Well, I mean, the thing is, let's just call it what it is. It's high-definition television. So now it's like, do I want to drive an hour to get there? Do I want to sit in traffic? Do I want to then park? Do I then want to give my ticket? Do I then want to figure out where my seat is? Do I then want to get my drinks and my food or whatever? Or do I want to sit on my ass and watch it on the couch from a high-definition television and order Uber Eats or whatever. So I think that's part of it. But, Vince, I want to ask you this. And, again, this is a delicate question, but I had an exchange with one of my buddies, and it originated from talking about them not paying the minor leaguers, and that's been fixed. So we'll move off from that. But he texted me back, and it looks like the gap, the company Fisher owns, the owner of the A's, is down 58% this year and is close to bankruptcy. I think his boat is leaking, and he might be close to selling the team. Number one, do you know anything on that? And number two, like, wouldn't that be the best thing for A's fans? Yeah, I know a lot about that, Z. I mean, me and Mr. Fisher, we converse quite a bit about matters like that. (laughs) I I think you know better, and it's not trying to be... I know I put you in a tough spot, but i got to ask the tough questions, Vince. Well, look, he has said he doesn't want to sell a team. He has not been very public. This is the situation with the minor leaguers was a step in that direction where he actually 
publicly made a statement and admitted his mistakes and things of that nature. He is certainly heavily involved in trying to get a new stadium built, much more aggressive than previous ownership has. So I think you have to give him that opportunity. I think every time you've got somebody in a certain position, you're always wondering, I wish I had X instead of Y. And you may regret having Y when you had X and X wasn't that bad, but you thought of it differently at the time. Yeah. I can't answer ownership questions. I mean, that, I'm sure there are several markets that feel the same way, that I wish that our particular ownership group would change to somebody else because we feel like somebody else is going to ride over the hill with the white horse and they're going to sound a bugle and everything's going to be a whole lot better. I can only speak that from what I've seen, aside from not being a person that talks publicly very much, but neither does the ownership of the Red Sox. You know, they're pretty quiet and they own the Boston Globe. I mean, and they own Nessa and they take certain opportunities to get their message out. But in terms of, of the A's, John Fisher has chosen not to do that. And We'll see how that plays forward. I, I think you just have to let this scenario play out because you can't disagree that once Dave Cavill came on board, that they have been much more aggressive. I mean, I came on in 06, and I think that that year they were already talking about Fremont, and they had the drawing of Cisco Field, how that was going to happen, and that never got remotely close to where they are in the process now. So I would just say let this process play out, and then if you feel like something has to change and you, and you go down that path at that point. But I, I don't see that happening. Another thing that's obviously happening in our country, and Oakland has always been ground zero for some racial change in this great land of ours. Baseball as a product and as a sport that is quote-unquote for black folks. We know participation uh, amongst the African-American community in baseball has been dropping over the years. There's obviously the Afro-Latino element from some of the Caribbean islands and things like that, but specifically from the African-American player perspective and from the way that the league treats its players and caters to its fans of that particular racial persuasion, do you think that uh, the MLB will come out with anything that addresses those specifically given our current social climate? They have talked about a partnership moving forward once this deal gets together, and I think this is just the first step of $5 million donation into different social and community interests around the country. To me, like the MLB draft, yeah. which has at least this year been reduced to five rounds. And my issue with that is that they are losing the opportunity to find that player, that African-American player, that player of color, to stay with the sport because he sees opportunity. I think opportunity has been, in certain regards, taken away from those type players where they've got to make different kinds of decisions. And they've suddenly, after the fifth round, become a herd of players trying to find a job, basically, everybody, you know, running to the uh, front of the line to try to get their resume out there to see if they get picked up by whichever team might be the case and, and start their career that way. I think if you're the sport and you want to grow the game and they have done things with inner cities and they've done things with building academies in the United States, most recently they did one in Dallas. And they certainly had the one in Compton and, and other places around the country. You've got to be more aggressive in that regard. You've got to find a way to drive those numbers up and you've got to get the Latroy Hawkins and the Tory Hunters of the world involved in a much higher platform to help present the possibilities of what the sport professional baseball can bring to an athlete of color. And I think they've got to move down those paths. Otherwise, I don't see those numbers growing. And I think that is something that is a concern. So I want to ask you about something, me, OCU, all broadcasting or whatever. So I, I just kind of want to know from the broadcasting standpoint, what exactly are you preparing for, assuming that baseball and players get their shit together and 
they agree on something and there's X amount of games or whatever. Like what exactly is going to be what you're going to do? Like take people behind the scenes of what you're preparing for broadcasting wise. Well, going back to when spring training was on its normal course and getting ready for what have been the opening day against the twins at the Coliseum in late March, leading up to that point, I've done my bio work on probably 13 of the 15 teams in our league. And then of course, all the bio work on, on our own club as well preparing my my little notebooks, my little Linus blanket of things that I keep in front of me just to give me a sense of security and a sense of calm as you watch the game. Certainly, for what I do, you got to follow the ball. I mean, that's no matter how much prep work I do, no matter how many stories I have to tell or things I want to bring on the air, you still have to follow the ball. And if you're in the car getting a gallon of milk, if I don't give you the score, you're going to shoot me. So that's first and foremost, but you want to do it in in an entertaining way. And as this process, which has gone on for close to three months, has played out, the scenarios have changed. So first, it was going to be a bubble here in Arizona, and everybody was going to come here. Then it was, well, we're going to play in some games in Texas and, and some games in California and some games someplace else. Then it's become regionalized, where we're going to be a part of the American League West and the, Amer- and the National League West, and that's going to be our Western Division. There's going to be a Central Division, and there's going to be an Eastern Division, and nobody has made that official yet. So the answer to the question, Z, is that I'm prepared for the American League side of it. And if it turns out we're going to play more games against the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks or you know, the Padres on the West Coast, then it's almost like treating it like interleague every year, right? I do that research once I, you know, once I know those teams. I had already begun preparation on the Philadelphia Phillies and the New York Mets because the A's were going to play at the NL East. That's not going to happen, not unless you get to the, to the World Series. But Vince, are you going to be able to be there? Because on the radio side, you have to not only, like, if you're doing TV, you're just, you know, commentating on what's taking place. On the radio side, you have to actually paint a picture. And unless you get a camera at every angle, you're not going to be able to paint the best picture. So, number one, are you going to be able to be there? And number two, how much harder is that going to be for you to doing it for radio people versus the TV people? Nothing is beneficial. But it would seem, at least at the beginning, once these games start, that broadcast crews will stay home when the team goes on the road. And that goes from East Coast to West Coast. So when the A's are playing in Seattle, Ken and I are not going to Seattle. We're not going to, at least not at the beginning. I don't know that for sure. That's not official yet. But it seems like, I mean, looking at, like, for instance, this weekend golf, Jim Nance is sitting in the 18th Tower, but Nick Faldo is sitting in a studio. So, I mean, that. The NBA has talked about when they restart their games. They'll be in a studio in Atlanta calling the game. So yeah. I, I think you're seeing that across all the different sports venues and how that's going to play out, at least at the beginning. In terms of the coronavirus, if things are getting in a safety scenario where you're, you're much more comfortable and the numbers have gone down, there aren't tremendous spikes, and you can get fans into the stadiums, there might be a chance you know, into September where you'll have fans and you'll have broadcasters traveling. Because certainly, you're right, Zia, as a radio broadcaster, you are the eyes. And you do paint the picture. And when you have to rely on a monitor for television, it's a challenge. But we're all going to be in the same boat. So uh, yeah. as is the case with everything in 2020, it's just not going to be the same. Yeah. Well, here's a question that hopefully doesn't reveal my idiocy. But I, <laughs> I that is, a, by the way, Vince, you know, being friends with Sean O'Connell for about, you know, five to seven years or whatever, you never hear this sort of preface. So I can't wait to hear what's going to come next because well, Sean is like one of the most proud men on the planet. But anyways, go ahead, Sean, to not make thinking, you sound like an idiot. So I'm obsessed and fascinated with the art of 
play-by-play in particular, but I'll play-by-play and color in every sport now because I've started to transition, you know, my chosen sport of mixed martial arts into that role of being a play-by-play man. And there's a lot less nuance to a fight for someone who's trained and knows what they're watching. It's just like, you know, when it comes to jujitsu exchanges, I guess you have to explain things to people a little bit. But for the most part, even a very uninitiated fan kind of knows what they're watching, and you're just narrating along with that. In baseball, I feel it's quite the opposite because, you know, even when you're watching a single at bat, there's just this battle going on between the batter and the pitcher and whatnot. And this is a technical question that maybe everyone else knows the answer to except for me. But when you're up there in the booth from that vantage point and that pitch comes – the best in the business, identify that pitch, Vince. And you're one of these people. You can identify that pitch in the moment, in the second. You don't need the replay. You don't need the slow motion. How, Vince? How, is it just are you cueing on the speed of the pitch? How do you know what the pitch is when it happens like this? So you want the secret sauce. Is that what you want? I want the secret sauce. Yeah. Well, we want this. the secret you sauce. You better do this off the podcast, Vince. You better charge Sean for this. No, I mean. To begin with, you start with who's pitching. Yeah. So you know who's on the mound, and you, for the most part, especially in today's game, you do your own pregame work of looking at video of that particular pitcher or certainly all the charts and all the information we get or things that I can look at online on what this pitcher throws and what he throws in a percentage of the time. By the time the game starts, I've already talked to players and coaches, what about facing this guy's changeup or this guy's curveball or whatever. So... I know what Shamanaya throws that I've seen him throw. So, and he's difficult because of the way the ball comes out of his hand. At times, you thought it was hotter um, when, in fact, just the way the changeup came out of his hand. And you just learn that through conversation. You learn that through repetition. Generally, what happens is you have an idea that, you know, he's just Lizardo. He's going to throw two seam, four seam. He's going to throw a curve and a slider and a changeup, but certain pitches he doesn't use very often, and I've had the conversation with him, when do you use this pitch? Well, I don't use it unless I've got a lead or I'm ahead of the count or situation presents itself. So I know I don't have to necessarily look for that pitch on a consistent basis. It's an acquired ability to see the pitch and recognize it. I don't get it right all the time, although I do get it right the majority of the time, but it does come from behind-the-scenes information and research in order to know that in advance. That might be a deep cut that other people are not as fascinated by, but to me, that's... Oh, that makes a lot of sense. It's an indication of dedication to your craft, but it's also an indication of knowledge and skill that everybody thinks they know the game that they're watching, but do you really know the game you're watching to the point where... You don't require the slow motion replay to tell you the difference between the motion on the slider and everything. That- well, oh, see, what it should teach you in your professional fighting league is that you go ask the fighters, when do you go to the kick? When do you go to the punch? When do you go to the jab? And then you'll be better off calling it. I mean, that's what I got from it. I mean, he's being able to do it because he knows what they're going to do in certain situations. But, I mean, there, this is where the difference in sports come into play, right? Like, a punch is a punch. And I could teach you in 10 seconds the difference between a hook and a jab and a cross, and you could correctly identify hook, jab, and cross very easily, even on a live broadcast. Pitches are not like that. That is a nuance of baseball that requires more homework and more experience and more mastery, and I've been very fascinated by it. And, Vince, I thank you for finally answering that question. Well, (laughs) let me just add to that. Here's my feeling, and I've said this since I've been doing this, you know, back in the 70s before 
Zach was even born. So um, <laughs> I've done thousands of professional baseball games. I started in 1981, and yet I've never stood on the mound. I've never stood in the box. And that's why it's important for me, and I learn something about the game every day. I do not take for granted that I have all the answers. In baseball, for some reason, people are watching Matt Chapman play or watching, you know, Lou Trevino pitch, and they equate that to them standing in the box at, you know, Whoop-de-Doo High School in Walla Walla Nowheresville. It's not even remotely close to that. So what I'm saying to you, if you are a play-by-play man, in a sport that you performed in, you already have an advantage. And you have an advantage from the analytical point of view in the play-by-play because you can recognize things that I still continue to learn. I'm a three-year-old. I count pitches, and I use different color-coded things in my scorebook. They count first-pitch strikes and they count first-pitch breaking balls. and So I can look back on my little line of sheet of paper and see if there's a trend or recall that when a situation is coming up that Shaman I has gone a first pitch breaking ball X number of times here, I think he's going to do that again. You, as somebody that's been in the ring and have delivered and have taken your share of blows, can use that to your advantage because you're, you can see the chess match. You can see moves ahead that I can at times, but I continue to learn it because I never stood in the box. You know, you, you're in the ring. You have the mindset. You know, to a certain degree, what's happening. And that is an enormous advantage for somebody like you to, to do what you're doing in the sport that you know so well. And Vince, I will tell you, number one, I've seen that firsthand. And I have seen the amount of work that you and Ken pour in. And I wish that I could have taken, I mean, you told me multiple times, come just sit in the booth. And I was honestly, the reason why I didn't do that, Vince, is not because I wasn't appreciative of the offer. It was because I was literally scared. Like being around you guys and me just doing the pre and post game stuff, I was scared to go do that. And I wish that I had taken more advantage of that. But you and Ken are an absolute treasure. I'm sure all the A's fans listening are going to be looking forward to actual baseball and you guys doing it the best way that you can, even if you're not in the actual building where it's taking place. We're going to lighten it up. Great Face Dave is part of our podcast he's part of the oc and z and friends so he's going to ask you like a softball question (laughs) i'm going to ask you one more hard question and i hate to keep bringing it back to the organization i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry but for all the flack that i've seemingly been giving on this podcast and i hope i haven't because i love the a's near and dear but like i've I've watched tahada and giambi and the big three go i've seen them all go but in terms of billy bean and bob melvin who to me like Say whatever you want about Billy Bean, but who has done more with less? And in terms of Bob Melvin, I see that guy at like the Oakland Starbucks or whatever. He is down to earth. He loves this city. He's done more with less also. But I'm asking you, how close was the A's organization to parting ways from them before they re-upped their contracts? With Billy or Bob? Both. I don't think either. First of all, as we all know, there was a movie that was made a few years ago. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie called Moneyball. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. Brad Pitt. Billy had a chance to leave, and he had a chance to go to one of the premier franchises in the sport, and he chose not to do it. So he's had opportunities. I think, to your point, I mean, Bob Melvin, for the A's, got to them at the right time. I remember Bob Melvin when he was a manager with the Seattle Mariners, and he's not the same guy. As none of us would be you know, as we continue to grow in whatever profession we choose. And he has grown so much. Uh, He's always been a very astute baseball man, but he's also grown in confidence and grown in his ability to lead and his ability to communicate both inside the clubhouse and certainly with idiots like me who always ask him one too many questions. 
but he's always willing to answer it. And he's, <laughs> and he's willing to give you the true inside answer. And he trusts that we know how to use the answer or what the background is on the answer that I can use in a different situation. So I don't, if Bob Melvin was ever a free agent, he'd be signed in 24 hours. I mean, I think yeah. Billy Bean is happy where he is or else Billy would have already left. I think he's in a thought of unique control, uh, unique opportunity. And I think while things have not gone the A's way in terms of getting back to the World Series and winning a World Series and certainly with the success, deservedly so, across the Bay, what they've done. If you're an A's fan and Billy is your, not GM now, but you know, president of baseball operations, and you're in the race, you know that Billy's going to make an effort to improve the team. Whether he made the right move or not is always subject to negotiation, Cespedes for John Lester and so on. But I think if you're an ace fan and you feel like in a regular setting, if you're coming to the trading deadline in July and your team is in it, he's going to step on it. And he will also be the guy that recognizes this isn't our year. Let's retool and let's get some good players. And he's been pretty astute at doing that as well. So I think the ace fan is fortunate in both regards to have them, you know, as part of the brain trust with David Forrest as well. All right, softball time. Well, I don't want to steal what might have been Great Faces Dave's question, but you guys just mentioned Moneyball, so I was inspired. All right, Moneyball Two is being made, and they come to you and they say, Vince, we got to cast someone to play you. I mean, Billy Bean, you can't complain when someone's like, we're going to have Brad Pitt portray the fictional version of you. Who's who's Vince Catronio in the Hollywood movie? Uh, I'll take Paul Giamatti. (laughs) Okay. I mean, if it's not Paul Giamatti, I'd probably have to settle for Danny DeVito, but it's one of those two. <laughs> Giamatti is a great actor, but you're the only person that I've ever asked this question to that downgraded in the looks department. Most people, they're just like, no, give me a more handsome version of myself. Well, who you got? Who you got, Sean? I mean, if someone's going to play me in a movie, Chris Pratt. Like, we're both well, hilarious. My wife would be happy Dwight. if I said George Clooney Dwight would be laughing the entire movie, so that makes no sense. <laughs> Sean, I hate to break it to you, but Dwight from The Office would play you. That's right. That's Yeah, Rain Wilson or whatever that guy's name is. So, Vince, I got a question for you. Who is the most interesting, quirkiest person that you had to share the booth with over the years? could be anything. could be someone who smoked a carton of cigarettes, someone who had to have their four boiled eggs before the show. I don't know. Just what's something quirky, kooky that you could tell people without embarrassing someone that you sat next to? I mean, first of all, to do what we do for a living, we're all quirky. And yeah, you could ask yeah, that question. Sure. People sit next to me and say, yeah, well, that Catronio does this, that, or the other. So to be fair, we, we're all in that boat paddling together. You know, in terms of quirky, I mean – I was fortunate to work with Larry Durker in Houston, who is a very unique character in his own right. Pitched in the big leagues as an 18-year-old and you know, went on to greatness, became the manager of, of the Astros. But he was a guy that always showed up in Hawaiian shirts. He always kept things loose, and yet he was very smart about the team. Yet the main broadcaster for that club is Milo Hamilton, and Milo always had to smoke his pipe, you know, like a, the old school stick the pipe in the tobacco patch. Yeah, my grandpa used to smoke one, yeah. We talked about martinis on the air quite a bit, and he always had this affinity. He would look at his schedule before the season began, and he would have, like, a little pocket schedule, and he would look at all the off days, and he would tell you exactly where he was going to dinner and what he was having that night (laughs) at that particular restaurant in San Diego or Pittsburgh or New York or whatever it might be. Working with Eric Nadell in Dallas, he's just a very – 
non-egotistical, very, very talented person who I, you know, I learned a lot from. I, I'm still in awe of a 60-ish something Jewish man from Brooklyn, and I'm from Brooklyn as well. I'm going to turn 60 this year. And because of Ruben Sierra, he turned himself, he taught himself how to speak Spanish. And my <laughs> wife is Hispanic. And my wife speaks Spanish and she gets intimidated speaking Spanish with Eric because he learned it, you know, in a much different way. You know, he went in the schools of the Dominican and, and down in Venezuela. He's been to Cuba many times. He's a very unique guy, just a, a you know, a wonderful person. And as for Korak, I mean, I can get 10 strokes aside from him and I just can't do anything remotely close to him on the golf course. And he's got the funkiest swing. If you remember the Olympics and you remember the great speed skater, uh, Paulo Ono, yeah. The way he started his takeoff, that's the way Ken has his golf swing. And yet, it's down the middle every stinking time. He's like wow. a tornado. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Wait, so are we learning, and I'm going to put this on the poll, are you surprised that Ken Korak beats Vince Catronio in golf? Are you telling oh, me that Ken beats you in golf all the time? He's, I've never beat him. He worked, first of wow. all, he worked in the golf business before he became a broadcaster. Okay, I'm pretty sure that, well... I mean, the polls have not turned out in my fashion, but I'm, when I post this, I think people are going to be shocked that Vince Catronio gets beat by Ken Korak. If you've seen my swing, you'd wonder why I'm still playing in the first place. So. <laughs> Fair enough. It's the hardest game in the world. Vince, you are a treasure. I mean that sincerely. You and Ken, I can't wait to hear you guys back, and however the hell you do it, and thank you for your time, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, fellas. I appreciate it. Anytime. Yeah, thank you so much. All good? Yep. Beautiful. All right. Thanks, guys. Be safe. All right. You Be too. safe. Later. Thank you. See you when I see you.